Walter Balbin, Jupiter Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio has previously served as a contributor both to SB Nation Mariners blog, Lookout Landing, and also Baseball Prospectus. She's currently the managing editor of the Hardball Times. It's Meg Rowley. Meg Rowley is the guest on this edition of the program. In her most recent appearance on Fangraphs Audio, which was also her first ever appearance on Fangraphs Audio, Rowley revealed that she had performed some scholarship in the field of political science, and in particular in the area of representation. That is literally how constituents are represented by their elected officials or lawmakers or however one might want to phrase it. In this particular episode, I ask Rowley how the dynamic of the union uh, might be different being led by a former player, uh, that is in Tony Clark, as opposed to a formidable labor lawyer like Donald Fear or Marvin Miller, for example. What benefits that might have for players uh, and uh, possibly what disadvantages as well. Rowley also relates on this edition of the program some anecdotes from her life in business. She previously worked for Goldman Sachs working with, as I understand it, aspiring hedge fund managers. She introduces me, at least, if not uh, listeners, to some of the lexicon of business and finance. And I ask her myriad uh, idiots questions about those fields. And what's her strategy for responding to those questions? It's a revolutionary one. I will say a bunch of words, and you can decide if they're an answer. Does Meg Rowley's revolutionary strategy for responding to an idiot's questions. We'll get to that conversation with Meg Rally momentarily, but first, it is both my honor and also an obligation, a professional obligation of mine, to uh, to note that Fangraphs memberships exist. For a reasonable sum, readers of Fangraphs.com can support the excellent work that appears in those electronic pages, and for a slightly less reasonable sum, but not wholly unreasonable, just slightly less reasonable, uh, those same readers can acquire, if they so choose, an ad-free membership, which allows them to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads that the tyranny of banner ads, and the distortive effects of banner ads. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership, both available at Fangraphs.com by then clicking around, by going there and then clicking around. Okay, uh, that with that advert with that advert complete, uh, let us now move on to our conversation with Meg Rowley. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of the Hardball Times, Meg Rowley. And when does it begin? Right now. Yeah. His, his campaign. Oh no! Did you want to? Did you want to finish? What was your? What was your sort of final? <laughs> would you like to wrap up your argument? Oh no! Meg Rowley. <laughs> oh, Meg Rowley. Um, <clears throat> actually, I did have. I, d- I do have a question for you. Um, sure. And it involves. Uh, I believe it involves a topic of some interest to you. It might even. <laughs> But even characterize it as your bailiwick, <laughs> <laughs> which is representation. Oh, yes. Two points to make. One is just a, a, just allow me to dwell momentarily on my own mortal embarrassment upon re- re-listening to our, to our last conversation. I did. OK. <clears throat> in in literature, which was my area of study as a graduate. Mm hmm. Representation is a word that's frequently used, or something like mimesis, to discuss how authors represent reality in fiction, right? Sure. Anytime you 
you know, in like a novel, for example, an author must necessarily include some details and exclude others. And by so doing, creates a version of the world that is artificial by necessity, but is also attempting to be representative of that world, right? So you kept saying representation, and it's obvious, listening back, I had no idea what you meant, <laughs> like a like a real dummy. And then eventually, I asked the question just because I was so embarrassed, and and then I got it. It's like literally like yeah. how people in who hold office, how they actually what it what it means to represent their their constituents right sure well okay. you shouldn't be embarrassed i should be embarrassed because i i did the old political theorist thing that we mm -hmm. are so bad at doing which is that we just assume that people know what the hell we're talking about yeah right and i think that's probably that's probably academia in general yeah so and i so, and I, so let's just be we're both embarrassed i think yes that's, i think that's fair to say <laughs> every um, day still really still, yeah to this day yeah <laughs> but a question of representation I have for you. And if this bores you to tears, please alert me immediately. Sure. If you feel ill-equipped, because I have not uh, I've not prepped you for this. Uh, but I'm interested for your thoughts on it if you have them. And it concerns... So you said something of last week that was of interest to me, right? Looking at representation and how it might... You, you said it, there might be some benefit for constituents to see someone who looks like them or at some level possesses a characteristic with which that constituent can identify. Does that is that fair? Yes. Okay. I was thinking about this in the context there's been of the players union. Mm. There has been quite a bit of conversation recently in the pages of fangraphs.com and on the lips and the fingertips of many of us who are interested in the sport of baseball. Yeah. Labor uh, has become an issue because the, uh, we have reached now, I, I can't say for sure it's historic because history for me only goes back as, you know, I, I don't know, a couple years, maybe 15 minutes. <laughs> so maybe it's not historic. It feels big, though. The lack of uh, contracts that have been given to free agents. Yeah. Now, the history, or at least the history over the last like 30, 40 years of the um, Major League Baseball Players Association I mean, it, it, typically it's been good for the MLBPA, right? Sure. However, in recent years, or, or it seems as though the MLBPA has uh, has hurt itself a little bit. Yeah. It seems a bit. And here's the thing, coincidentally or not, we have one of the leader of the Players Association, Tony Clark, to the best of my knowledge, is not trained in legal matters. He's a former player. Right. But he's not trained in legal matters, whereas Michael Weiner or Weiner before him, was a lawyer, a labor lawyer, Donald Fear, Marvin Miller. I think probably Marvin Miller was known as kind of the heavy, heaviest heading of them all. Right. They were all lawyers. I, I don't know if they were all specifically trained in labor law. I have done very little preparation. <laughs> <laughs> but my point is is in the question of Tony Clark, because Tony Clark sure. is a former player. And, and I was wondering, it, it's leading me to this question, and you can answer it in the context of baseball, or if you want to say real life, Right. Yeah. On the one hand, Tony Clark is more like his constituents than than his, uh, you know, three or four predecessors. Right. They sure. say, look at him. He played baseball. I play baseball. Therefore, he's representing my interests. On the other hand, those other dudes didn't play baseball, but they were, in theory, very good labor lawyers. Yeah. And I wonder if this happens in real life, too, where we want people who look like us or sound like us or in general conduct themselves like us in office. But we also don't want them to be exactly like us. Because we, and I'm speaking for myself, I am a moron. I want someone who's <laughs> more well-prepared for the job than I am. Sure. Oh, that's a really interesting way of framing 
the problem, which makes me think that I will I will say a bunch of words and you yeah, can decide if they're an answer. <laughs> and then maybe I will try to commit more of them in a more rehearsed way to, you know, to paper or electronic oh paper. Ele electronic paper, yeah. So I think that I think there is value. Well, okay. How do I want to frame this? I think it kind of depends who you're talking about within the union. So I was thinking about as this is going to sound weird as I want to do. I was thinking about maybe how, how like someone like Kyle Seeger, who's a favorite Mariner, current Mariner of mine. It's not surprising that you're thinking about Kyle Seeger. Yeah, if just, you're, it if sounds weird to say, though. Twitter history and Instagram pages <laughs> are any indication in it's, it takes up a lot of your time, actually. But so I was thinking about I, I was thinking about how this sort of offseason would play to a guy a guy like him, right? A player in his sort of situation, and and maybe how the last CBA negotiation would have seemed to a guy in his situation. So you know when when Jeff Passan was he he wrote that great piece about how the economic system of baseball might be broken, and he had some little tidbits in there about how, you know, the, the players association during the last negotiation was worried about, you know, making sure that guys like had an empty seat next to them on the spring training bus and they wanted better nutrition and chefs in the clubhouse and, you know, kind of things we might think of as sort of workplace creature comfort things. And, you know, for a guy like Kyle Seeger, that makes a lot of sense. Like mm -hmm. Kyle Seeger has a hundred million dollar contract. He's guaranteed that money he is in a position to do what guys want to do when they sign those big free agent deals which is to take care of himself and his family for the rest of his life and um you know set his kids up and all that that good stuff and so it is not surprising that that set of interests would be one that is in the realm of negotiation for the mlbpa and guys like him have a lot of power, maybe not as individuals, but sort of collectively as a block within within the MLBPA because they've sort of set things up so that guys are taken care of in free agency, right? This is part of the sort of handshake agreement that owners and players had, which is that they didn't want to pay players for future production when they were young because like what if they blow out their knee or they end up being Dustin Ackley or whatever. And so they were going to play cost controlled for a number of years and then they were going to get paid on the back end. And that worked for a long time. I mean, not perfectly, because there are guys making less than minimum wage in the minor leagues, and there are international players who are getting exploited and all sorts of yucky stuff. But like the general idea was one that sort of made sense and, and is not unfamiliar within uh, how unions kind of operate sometimes, which is that they tend to give benefits to more senior members. But And as a player or a former player, I think it probably meant something to guys in that group to be able to look at Clark and say, he knows what it's like. Like we exist in this incredibly strange workplace that is a workplace, but is so weird and has such high expectations of our time and is part of our personal lives in a way that a lot of jobs aren't. And we're compensated for that in a way that is um, really extravagant for some, but is is like it's a weird job and it would probably be nice to have someone who you know is is familiar with the with the strangeness and sort of understands what would be important to you but i think where they've maybe fallen down a bit is can i overtax a cultural reference oh please i find it useful sometimes when i am editing or like doing like data stuff or like 
prepping payroll or whatever to have something on in the background, like a movie or a TV show that I know well, so don't have to pay attention to, but just to have a little background noise. So I'm not sitting like alone in my home office with my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And The Godfather is on Netflix now, which is okay. nice because then mm-hmm. you get to, to watch it. And you know, in the, in the Godfather, they have this whole bit about how, you know, Hagen's not a, a wartime consigliere. And I, I think just to super overtax a kind of gross mob metaphor, but mm-hmm. we're going to do it anyway because yep. it's a, a movie that many people have seen and a metaphor many people will understand probably more than some of my, you know, really weird political theory references. You know, I just wonder if he's up for it right now because this is a different thing. And I think maybe the mistake that the the MLBPA made was in assuming that peacetime would last forever and that there might not be uh, smaller skirmishes in between that required a more strategic eye. And I think part of what the you know, what any good leader is going to want to do is impress upon the membership of the union what the long-term risks are to them and to their well-being. And, you know, I don't know how fair it is to blame Tony Clark for not anticipating this moment because we all seem very surprised that this offseason has no, had such little activity. But it is maybe something that, you know, Marvin Miller would have looked at and said, huh, in a couple years, we might be in a real bad way. So maybe we should negotiate, you know, to protect what we anticipate will be future earnings rather than assume that this will just be like great for a long time. So those are a lot of words. And I don't know if any of them really answered your question, except for me shoehorning in a really awkward Godfather reference. But no, I think I think that uh, I like what's happening. I like what's happening. And I guess the answer is you could have both, right? I mean, it's not like, to be clear, it's not like he's going in there by himself against Rob Manfred and like yeah, negotiating the CBA, right? He's, well, that's what I, right. you know, they're lousy with labor lawyers, I assume and hope, and that is my understanding. So it's not like he's just there by himself, but I think that, you know, you kind of want the guy or gal in that seat to feel like more of a match for the person on the other end. And I think that, you know, however we may feel about it, Rob Manfred has proven himself to be a very savvy and shrewd negotiator and quite capable of the sort of long-term strategy and thinking that you need to kind of zealously guard some interests. So I hope that one of the things that will come out of this is the is the Players Association sort of taking a long look in the mirror and saying, I don't know, who's the best uh, labor law partner we can poach from somewhere. Let's throw a <laughs> stack of money at that person and then have them do a better job the next time around. Because the, the trick is going to be that, you know, they've they've made these concessions. And so rejiggering this is going to be really painful because ownership isn't going to be inclined to do that for nothing, however mm-hmm. much we might want them to. And so I think it could get very ugly. Yeah, I think Craig Edwards, in a post he wrote for today with regard to MLB payrolls, he estimated that that every club is probably receiving, like at a minimum, like $125 million from combination of like revenue that they receive and then also from revenue sharing. Right. Did I say $125 million yet? Did I say that out loud? You said that out loud. Okay. Um, Which is, and, th- uh, that's a lot of money. Yeah, that you that they could essentially run a payroll. I think his his hypothesis was any team could run a payroll of 125 million dollars and not risk losing money at this point. Right. 
And so then the the question becomes how do we how do we codify a responsibility to spend more? We being at this moment, me we being, being prox- not us, not us, because <laughs> you really don't want me negotiating the CBA either. But I will share an anecdote from a prior, my prior life when I was working in finance, and I. Oh wait, I don't know if we. Uh... Oh, we talked about this on Effectively Wild. It's a it's a weird time. Yeah, our, wait, why don't you, why don't you relate moment. the anecdote and then allow me to, to ask you questions about finance? Okay. So I, I worked- Wait a second. Do you ever do any work with private equity? I, I worked with hedge funds. You ever work with a hedge fund? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know how they're, all their hedge funds? Did you hit your numbers, Meg Rowley? Well, I, I, was a, I worked on a consulting team. Okay. And I, you know, without giving away specifics of this, that probably would get me in some sort of finance trouble, some sort you of cause, fi- you, finance yeah. jail. <laughs> we, if we take those things seriously. Who's to say? All of my licenses have lapsed, so I don't know what my obligations are. But I will say that, you know, one of the things that I would do mm-hmm. while I was working there was I was helping new, new hedge funds uh, do some business planning. So not investing planning, but like business planning, like, you know, finding office space and hiring people and setting HR policies and like buying systems and, you know, all this stuff that I was words. Yeah. Don't worry about it. We're going to get we're going to get to the the (laughs) I was about to say the relatable part of the story, but that's a lie. The the more relevant (laughs) part of this story, you know, this is what I did when I was like in my early to mid 20s. So I'm sure I was very qualified, but you know, you work. Did you work sixty hours a week? I worked a lot. Yeah, I worked a lot, which was part of why I stopped doing that. Yeah. But and you can't drink Shiraz while you're doing that. No, you really can't. <laughs> At least uh, and not feel like you're doing a good job. All right. So, so you know, like guys, I would say guys and gals and other folks, but it was almost always men you know, youngish men would come in and they'd want to start a new hedge fund and they would they would be sort of interviewing us, but we would be kind of interviewing them to see if we wanted to take them on as a client. And I would often be in these pitches as a representative of my team and, and talk about the services we could offer and whatnot. And, you know, I remember a pair of guys coming in and they were they were going to be the the hot new launch on the street that year, right? They were they were going to be superstars. And they were telling us about how much money they had to start this new fund. And the guy said something along the following lines. Well, I have about $100 million of my own, and my partner has another 50, and we have like $35 million of friends and family money soft-circled. And I sat there and did not say any of this, but was thinking to myself, like, why are you here, man? Like, why aren't you on an island somewhere or, yeah. like, saving children or planting trees or playing video games or whatever, right? Why are you doing this? Why are you volunteering to work 80 hours a week and maybe lose all this money to start a new fund? And I think about that moment every time we talk about the owners versus the the MLBPA, which is that like these are not like hundred millionaire guys. These are billionaire guys. And billionaire guys become billionaire guys because they're not sitting around being content with a hundred million dollars. And we could have a very long and probably should have a long conversation as like a culture about what that means and how we feel about it and whether we think that's the right thing. But you know, the owners aren't gonna give away money for free, even if they could run payrolls of $125 million just based on revenue sharing and money from BAM and whatever. So 
I think that it is incumbent upon the union to insist that we be very clear going forward about like what the expectations are going to be. And there's some, you know, there's some language and, and whatnot in the CBA right now about having to reinvest in the team and sort of that kind of thing. And you can get in trouble as a franchise for spending too little. And we have seen that. So it's not as if it's like totally unregulated, but you know, they're going to zealously guard their interests and we might think that they're bad people for doing that. But it is allowable. And so I think that the union needs to think very carefully about making sure they're positioned to fight a fight and make very specific demands that are then codified. Because otherwise, you know, they got $100 million and another 50 from their partner and they just want to make more money. So. And wait, and will you say the word, <laughs> will you say the, the soft circle thing again? So it just meant that they had, they had friends and family and, and colleagues sort of lined up ready to invest with them. There would be money coming in the door day one. To... I'm so happy that you know all these business words. It's really <laughs> the worst. It rotted my brain in a very real way. It took at least six months for me to be able to like write reasonably well once I got to grad school because I was used to a whole bunch of jargon and writing like bullets in emails. Um, So I don't know if if you are acquainted with DanePerry.com. No, that's not his name. No, it is his name. He he changed his last name to .com just for only $15 a month. He he needs it. <laughs> yeah. I am uh, we have not we have not met yeah. but uh you know we are acquainted in that sure. Twitter way. Yeah. By way and I've heard him yell at you on this podcast a lot. Okay, so if you've listened to a conversation, I don't know if you we will occasionally we we share we share something in common which is a mutual love of business words. <laughs> <laughs> and in particular business people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You just feel immediately ridiculous when you, it's Hmm. like when you, I don't know if you do this, because like you're responsible for a tiny person and are busy, but occasionally I will like get in little tiffs on Twitter and Hmm. just feel very stupid at the end because like why? Oh, it's not satisfying. It's not satisfying. It's a total waste of time. And I will, I will endeavor to describe the part of my day that was made worse by that to like a friend or my mom. And they will just look at me like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Go outside. What do any of these words mean? Subtweeting? What the? So business is like that a lot. Yeah. I think the worst one was that people would say that, and this this has made its way into philanthropy and it's it's equally bad there. You know, we just need to make sure that we're touching our clients. And I'm like, we shouldn't touch our clients. We should have a no touching policy. Yeah, you shouldn't touch them. No touching. We don't want to, we don't want to encourage touching of any kind. Um, <laughs> so that, that's a bad one. That's oh, one wait, that should wait, go wait, away. Wait, I recently came across a, yes, a business word in one of my, um, nonprofit experiences in which we say it was something about how oh inoculating people are you familiar with this term maybe it's only in nonprofits but it was something about essentially means like like a way to educate people Uh, it was something about how we had to inoculate people uh, with a certain idea so they understood it from one perspective and not another isn't that like a disease term it, well, in fact, I was doing the work for uh, Maine All Care, attempting to oh. uh, attempting to ensure everyone in Maine. So it, it, I guess, and there are a lot of doctors, so perhaps that that's why they use that term. Yeah. But the idea was uh, so that they would view this enterprise not as a, a dirty socialist strategy, <laughs> um, but but as something that served their interests. 
in, in a real way. And <laughs> you have to inoculate the people so that they see that. Which occurs to me, for those people who already don't care for vaccinations, it's just not going to work at all. Yeah, but what, <laughs> what are the odds that you're going to sway those folks anyhow? It's a good point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess it's another good point when you're attempting to... We were, you and I were discussing briefly off-air strategies that the union might employ to endear themselves to the public if, if and when a work stoppage seems like an option, which it may not. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I've seen other people use the word, the phrase work stoppage, and now I am using it, okay? Yeah. <laughs> but we talked about that, but maybe... Um, but you're right. There's always going to be some people you'll never reach, right? Right. But you have to find out what your um, you have to find out what the extent of your reach is, and you don't want to waste any resources on the people beyond that. Right. But you want to maximize your resources on the people within that. I'm going to use a term that I've heard recently within that soft circle. <laughs> Did I use it correctly? Not really, but that's okay. <laughs> I would be very disappointed if you did, candidly. Oh, Meg, rally business words. Well, yeah. Uh, I am so excited. Can I tell you something that you, I don't know if you find glorious or pathetic? Yes. I don't know what a hedge fund is. That's okay. A lot of people okay. who work in hedge funds don't know either. Okay, no, well, that's, I'm glad. that's sassy in a way that isn't quite fair, but um, uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> I know it's something that Warren Buffett is in charge of. He's in charge of one sure. of them, or maybe yep. a bunch of them. I know I definitely heard the word hedge fund a lot in the movie by by Adam, not Adam West, not Adam Frazier. He, he's a utility man for the Pittsburgh Pirates. <laughs> Will Ferrell's friend named Adam, who did the movie with uh, Steve Carell. Do you, do the you, Big you, Short? The Big Short, yeah. 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 Uh, the word hedge fund uh, was ubiquitous in that, wasn't it? Yes. And yes. Um, I've also heard men, angry men on the phone at a Holiday Inn, <laughs> talk about hitting their numbers oh my <laughs> uh, yeah i think i think finance takes years off your life it looks so it's weird. very and stressful it's, it's also just and listen i don't know if i need to make this gendered but i really feel like it is perfect like finance the world of finance it seems perfectly constructed for a certain demographic of dude for a subset yeah. of dude and maybe you feel uncomfortable commenting on that because you don't have you don't necessarily want to pile on, dude. But I will pile on. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it seems as though there's a certain type of guys like, oh wait, I recently came across some language like this. A guy was talking about all of the things he'd done, and none of the words make sense to me. <laughs> and it was just everyone in finance to me seems like it's this is how this is what it all sounds like to me. It sounds like they overheard their dad on a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and they're trying to use the words that he uses, used, but they don't know what they mean. <laughs> Everyone seems like it's. They're like, "Yeah, I'm gonna. We have to uh, let. We have to leverage the 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 things into the other thing." Yeah, it. Uh, yeah. you know, I like. Uh, I was fortunate in that I worked with. I worked with a very good group of of people. Mm-hmm. I had a, a very good boss who was uh, very. Cognizant of how little diversity there was, even at, you know, at a big firm where they have sort of diversity initiatives and they're trying to improve that sort of thing. I'm going to ask you, wait, let me ask you questions about this. You answer to the extent, as many of them, and to the extent that you feel comfortable. Okay. Are you allowed to say what firm? Oh, yeah. Well, Ben kind of gave this away on Effectively Wild. Which friggin' Ben. It's, no, it's fine. Uh, I worked at Goldman. No, for, friggin' oh, Goldman. Yeah. Goldman. I worked at Goldman for five years. From what about Saks? Did you did you see was Saks <laughs> yes. there too? Yes. God, that is such a terrible finance thing. I worked at Goldman. 
God. See, I don't even know. Yeah, don't Freaking worry. Worst. Yes, I worked at Goldman Sachs from I, I was an intern in the summer of 2007, mm-hmm. and then I worked there from uh, July 2008 to July 2013 when I sure left that to sounds go to like a school. a thing with which I'm aware. As you would do, what was it? The internship was that between was that like between your junior and senior year? Then yeah, yeah, that's right. Did representatives from Goldman Sachs pay a visit to Bryn Mawr? Bryn Mawr, right? Yes. Well, oddly enough, they, they did, or at least one did. There was a, a woman who, I don't know if she's still at Goldman. Hmm. I should look look her up. She was a, a mentor to me while I was there, but she was a, a Bryn Mawr grad. And, uh, you know, we were not a major recruiting center by any means, but uh, I think they had some some people from there. Here's here's another set of finance words that mm-hmm. will make you probably cringe from their human capital management team. Ooh, the old HCM team. Oh boy. Who were coming down to recruit people from Penn, I would expect, and mm-hmm. Villanova perhaps. So they kind of did a little stop over at Bryn Mawr. So I, I interned there that summer before my senior year and then started uh, in July after I had graduated the following year. So... Very exciting. And your job, when you, when you were employed, you were on a team to help hedge yes. funds become <laughs> so, a thing? Yeah. So the, the business <laughs> – oh, I hope this this might be very boring for people listening. The business is – Oh, uh, I do not. This is – You don't care. This is must-watch uh, television the, the somehow. Business it's, it's is a podcast, called, but it's a television too. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, the business is, is called Prime Brokerage. That exists across uh, across the street – finance term what does that even mean across the street so the across wall street across all the big the big banks and the way that i would describe uh prime brokerage to incoming interns Mm -hmm. uh is that it's it's like a a bank for a hedge fund a prime broker lends hedge funds money so that they can leverage their positions (laughs) take bigger take bigger bets in the market as as it will they also lend them uh securities like stocks stocks carson mm-hmm. you're familiar with this concept of stocks <laughs> like like yeah uh, I, I have i have well i don't know man i don't know where no, the no, it's okay. le- i don't know where the level is Stop. um money Are yeah money currency <laughs> Yeah. It all started with tulips. No, um, so they, you know, they they lend hedge funds stocks so they can sell them short in the market. You may be familiar with this from the movie The Big Short. <laughs> the Big Short, yeah, yeah, yeah. with Steve Carell. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then they provide a bunch of sort of add-on services to help them run their business. So I worked initially on a team that would sit sort of between our clients and our internal technology groups to build out our reports and oh, building out you got to build out yeah and, and technology platforms right so we would be like hey our clients say we need this and they'd say okay here's how you do it and then we would go out to clients and and translate technical language to train them to use the stuff they needed and then as my time there progressed i i worked also on a consulting team that was where i did sort of new business stuff mm-hmm. new startup stuff now let me ask you like all of it sounds like pretend to me what yeah the, the words you're saying yeah it's I pretty far that, removed from like real work. I recognize that also that there's lots of money in it. Yeah. Flying around everywhere. Yeah. Like, do you feel like you're like, do you think you were providing an ROI for old GNS? Yeah, I, I do. Okay. To society more broadly, <laughs> that answer started to break down, which was part of why I 
was ready to go. Like we, you know, there there was a lot of uh, new financial regulation while I was there. And I remember very clearly one day, like, we're, you know, we're talking about this and how it will affect, you know, Goldman as a firm and how it will affect the clients of the firm. And I remember saying in a meeting, you know, this this says really interesting things about how we culturally value work. And there mm-hmm. was silence for like 30 seconds. <laughs> and I was like, I am thinking about this and asking very different questions than most of the people in this room. And I should probably go to grad school. I sure. Okay. So let me ask you a real dummies question. All right. So as you noted, there were uh, new regulations. I assume this was after yes. the Great Recession capital. Correct. Capital R. Now, what I think I know about uh, the financial world is that when handed a set of constraints, the response is not, yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> the response is like, all right, given this new set of constraints, how can we maximize our our returns on investment? Yeah, I think so that's it's, right. So it's not like it's not like they're getting room. It's like, hey guys, we got this. We got these new laws, and I think that in that in addition to really following the letter of the law, we should also really make sure <laughs> <laughs> that we are uh, following the spirit of the law. Right. And because, you know, I think we might be partially to blame uh, for all of the uh, for for the all the people losing their money for the tanking of the global economy. Yeah. So we should be more responsible from now. I have a I have a sense that that's not the conversation that occurs. Well, first of all, I'll say that a lot of those conversations happened, I would imagine, pretty far above my level. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think that and this is true. I don't think that this is unique to financial services, although you have the unfortunate reality that often the the products that big banks are are dealing in or that their clients are dealing with are not always fully understood by their regulators, which is dicey. Yeah. But yeah, where is Warren G when you need him? Right. I mean, I think that it's one of those things where this system allows people to walk right up to the line. Sometimes a little past it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they'll take, if you give them an inch, they'll take an inch. And if you give them a mile, they'll take a mile. And uh, that is the approach that they have. So I think it is why it is really important to be very thoughtful in how you craft regulation around that stuff and understand very, like, precisely what it is that you're trying to prevent. So that uh, you, you know. A fascinating entree back to how to how we began this conversation, which is... Um, the terms that are, are necessary, if, you know, uh, in the case of the finance industry, right? Mm-hmm. The constraints are obviously placed on them by law, by the law. Right. <clears throat> what is and w- what is not allowed. That is essentially, and, and I suppose you could say, correct me if I'm wrong, that there is some bargaining that occurs. And that would be the, the sort of bargaining between maybe those folks who represent the, the financial industry, mm-hmm. the lobbyists. Yes. And then uh, lawmakers. Correct. And what, on the on the one hand, obviously, there is some incentive for lawmakers to give an ear to uh, lobbyists because uh, it could ultimately help them, you know, to get reelected, et cetera. Yeah. But they also have to have a certain amount of responsibility to their constituents. Yes. Um, if only also to get reelected. Right. Yes. So in the case of... Uh, MajorLeagueBaseball.com. Mm-hmm. 
which is actually related to to DaneBerry.com. <laughs> They're in a constant fight. Yeah. There's another type of, I mean, the bargaining occurs not between uh, the industry and lawmakers, essentially, but between two parties, to the owners. Right. And, and, the, uh, and uh, if again, if the players want to protect themselves, they have to understand, and I'm sure they do understand, I'm, I'm dramatically oversimplifying it, I'm sure, uh, but they have to make sure that the letter of the law represents precisely what they want because you're not going to get the owners to just participate in the spirit of the law. Right. And I think that um, I've been, you know, it's been sort of a bummer of an off season, both in terms of the like reality that pitchers and catchers report in like two weeks and we have a hundred top free agents unsigned. And, you know, and also I think the dialogue around this off season is mirroring in ways that make a lot of sense, but also a real big bummer mirroring some of the, the broader conversations that we're maybe having culturally about, you know, labor dynamics and pay inequity and, you know, and whatnot. So it can be a real big bummer. But I think that one of the things that I'm encouraged by, if we are going to take away things to be encouraged by, is one that I think it is very clear to everyone exactly, you know, sort of how hard a line the union probably needs to take going forward. And I think that for us as a commentariat, are we calling ourselves that? It sounds so pretentious. But as as an industry of writers, you know, I think that people have been criticizing some of the things that we maybe take for granted in the way we talk about free agent signings and moves and the system as it exists. And I think that people have been, you know, kind of open to trying to be more mindful of that. Not perfectly, certainly, and there's probably more work to be done, but, you know, that we shouldn't assume that or take at face value, you know, the pirates' assertion that they can't run a bigger payroll than they are right now, right? That we should ask if that's, you know, they're making a, a choice, an active choice, and they could do something different and they're choosing to do this and they should be, you know, evaluated on the merits of that choice, understanding that it's an active one. So I think we're hopefully being, we're exercising a bit more imagination about the answers that we are being given and trying to apply sort of a critical lens to them which is good because yeah. it makes the analysis more honest and hopefully a bit more you know balanced is like such a loaded thing to say right now but you know isn't isn't assuming that one side is out here just like doing their very best and the <laughs> other side is out here just being real annoying asking for money you know we can be a bit more critical about it so yeah so that's uh, good is it good it is i guess it's good i guess it's good it's what we have yeah, I don't think we know anything. That's mostly, uh, I mean, in the end, of the, at the end of the day, it's yeah, like, it's the absurd sacks of flesh walking around, right? Presented with like a very yucky soup of reasons why this particular year is looking as bad as it is. Some of which are probably, you know, not unique to this year, but specific to the dynamics of this particular labor market, and some of which suggest a need for pretty significant changes to the way that that labor is treated and conducts itself going forward so you know it's a bad soup yeah it's a shame soup's great you know there are a lot of there are a lot of good soups out there so many good soups yeah and don't even be uh hey listen don't even be fooled because not all soups are called a soup i mean a gazpacho right right it doesn't it's not called gazpacho soup no and like chili exists as this whole separate category yeah, but right. it's soup yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's just ever, spicier soup hey you ever have any mulligatani soup i have had mulligatani soup it's delightful <laughs> i like it a lot <laughs> it is hey listen 
Hey. Uh, 6.30 Eastern time currently. Yeah. Uh, which also happens to be the time that we begin to bathe our tiny son so that he doesn't smell like a little piece of vomit. <laughs> like a little vomit potato. You don't want that. No. Another terrible soup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Vomit potato soup. Yeah. That's what he gets going. Awful. So what I propose is that we stop. We okay. just stop. Um, but what I would like to do is first is do a couple things. Do you agree? So do you agree that that's an okay idea? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Um, what I would like to do is I would just say, Meg Rally, you have fulfilled your obligation to the program. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's great. And then I would also like to say thank you. And you could say you, you could say you're welcome. I guess. I don't know. Well, you're welcome, but also, you know, thank you for uh, <laughs> take, taking the time. And uh, you know, I hope. If you I have one request, it's that anytime you know, henceforth, uh, that a business word <laughs> crosses your path, maybe in your mind's eye, that you just write it down. I would just, I could just read the next entire episode that we record. Could just be you saying business words and I attempt to guess what over. they mean. Or, yeah. <laughs> Should be a recurring segment, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, that has been editor of the Hardball Times, contributor to FanGraphs.com. Meg Rally. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.